creeds and criticism meet. of Reference Podcast. Welcome to the Split Frame of Reference Podcast. I'm Allison. And I'm Nick. And we have quite a treat, another treat for you today. Yep. Um, not because Nick will be um, primarily going through Romans 1 with his some of his own translation, but mm-hmm. because um, he didn't pay what he owed last time. Mm. Um, we had an agreement that Nick would need to eat some wonderful jelly beans, and I will probably just sip on some delightful whiskey while he does so. Mm-hmm. But yes, Nick, time to pay what you owe. Uh, all right, let's do this. Let's honor do this. Of, of Boondocks Christmas. There we go. <laughs> all, right, all right, so first one we have, it's either dead fish or strawberry banana smoothie. I don't know which one. That one. This one? Yep. Yeah, I gave him water this time. Yep, that's dead fish. Gosh, you're kind of just kind of rolling through this now. Ugh. There we go. The taste okay. is going to be there. There's got to be while. some suffering. Yeah. So, and yeah. then a repeat bar for peach. Bar, bar, bar. Bar. <laughs> Are they all like bad and just there's no like, I have no right idea. side? Ugh. This is great. Oh, it just sits on your tongue. Maybe oh. it's just the, the false hope. Yeah, I suspect they give you two of each. That's or right. the exact same okay, one. Okay, spoiled milk or coconut? Oh, this one you can't make me do. Like, do it. Go. Do it. And it's new. It's a new flavor. She a coconut. You can't tell. Nice coconut. Oh, okay. Well, he's got to have one good one. Ugh. All right, last one. Well, I hate coconut, so it's not a Okay, last one doesn't sound so horrible. Canned dog food or chocolate pudding? That's like the worst. Let me spit that out. He doesn't like coconut, so no. I win. Dog food or chocolate, basically? Yep. Chocolate pudding, to be exact. Dog food. Dog food. Oh. No swearing. Oh, this whiskey's good. And has cinnamon for the holidays. Oh, gosh. These are awful. Oh, yep. gosh. Yep. Deserved. Ugh. I can't believe we did that. Ugh. I can. All right. Anyway, what are we doing? So he deserved this, though, right, guys? No, like he's no, been tormenting no, with no, beers. No. Not tormenting. Yes. No, yes. it's not the same thing. Yes, it's it not is. The same. No, yes. those do not taste the same as beer. They don't taste the same. Exactly. Point. But I'm glad we agree. Sameness on this. does not equal of equal. Would you rather have those or beer? Uh, not sure. Yeah, dog food or barf over beer. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, so that's not equivalent, and there will be payback. But yours had, like, a ritual element to it. Yeah. That made it my suffering So you adopted the ritual element, so it's all your fault. Not, like, consciously. Anyway, so what are you reading, losing one? What what are you reading? Well, Nick, um, I've been reading The Cross and the Lynching Tree by James Cone. Oof, I remember reading I'm going through this one slowly, um, just because I'm using it more devotionally perhaps yeah um but i, I don't know it's, it's given me it. a lot to think about and um i won't say what but i've been going through a rough time too lately 
And I think this has also given me some additional perspective hmm. on it. Um, I'll read a couple of, I'll skip around. I'll read a couple of sections okay, read from a couple sections. just page two, two and three, because it kind of like sets the tone for the whole thing. Mm-hmm. So he writes, the cross is a paradoxical religious symbol because it inverts the world's value system with the news and hope come that news and, ah, sorry, let me write, let me do it again. The cross is paradoxical. It's a paradoxical religious symbol because it inverts the world's value system with the news that hope comes by way of defeat, that suffering and death do not have the last word, that the last shall be first and the first last. Hmm. And I'll go down. Christ crucified manifests, manifested God's loving and liberating presence in the contradictions of black life, that transcendent presence in the lives of black Christians that empowered them to believe that ultimately... In God's eschatological future, they would not be defeated by the troubles of this world, no matter how great and painful their suffering. Hmm. Believing this paradox, this absurd claim of faith, was only possible through God's amazing grace and the gift of faith, grounded in humility and repentance. Hmm. There is no place for the proud and mighty, for people who think that God called them to rule over others. The cross was God's critique of, of power, white power, with powerless love, snatching victory out of defeat. Hmm. Then I'll read over a bit more. All right. In that era, the lynching tree joined the cross as the most emotionally charged symbols in the African-American community. Symbols that represented both death and promise of redemption, judgment and the offer of, of mercy, suffering and the power of hope. Hmm. Both the cross and the lynching tree represented the worst in human beings and at the same time an unquenchable ontological thirst hmm. for, for life that refuses to let the worst de- determine our final meaning. Hmm. And yeah, I um, I love James Cone. I've you know, but I hadn't read uh, this one in particular. Um, and I think it, uh, if I could just sum up, maybe the big takeaway is that something I've been contemplating on for a while is that um, there's another, I would say, layer to the world as it really is, hmm. and that allows God's meaning to trump any meaning that. Um, I would say um, powers of darkness, um, whether human or demonic or or, both. or or systemic or anything. Yeah. Um, whatever uh, meaning they would like to assign you or a group of people, um, God's meaning ultimately triumphs. So you're saying God is God and no one else is. That's right. Yeah, yep. It's a good way of doing it. I need more water because I've got barf and dead fish stuck in my teeth right now. Deserved though. Mm-mm. Not true. All right. So what are we doing today? Uh, so we will be going through, or Nick will be primarily going through Romans one, mm-hmm. and he's going to be using some of his own translation as well. Yeah, it's one of those fun things when you learn Greek, you decide I need to translate everything so I can determine what it means. And ironically, ninety five percent of the Bible, English Bible that we have, is actually fully fine and competent and great. It's just some little things here and there that kind of get missed or nuances and stuff like that. Yeah, and there's something to be said about um, listening to. You know, several voices in the yeah. translation process, and sometimes adding your own voice to the mix. Yeah. In humility. <laughs> in humility, yes, very much And humility. fear trembling. Yes. And so uh, there's three words I, I want to briefly talk about before we go through Romans 16 to 32, just really briefly. 
Uh, first is the word soma, which is body. It usually in Paul refers to the totality of the human person as a material creature. Sometimes it's also viewed eschatologically, like First Corinthians 15, the spiritual or, or pneumatic body of the resurrection. But it, it always has a material concept, but it's never excluded from, it's never a separate thing. It's usually used to just describe what it means to be human, basically. Um, and this will play a, a major part in later in Romans 1. A second is the word anthropos, which usually in English translations or some English translations gets translated translated as man. Uh, most of the time, though, it refers, uh, it's anthropos, which means person or human being. So it's, it's a more inclusive term than the word man is. And so sometimes in translation, we kind of miss that. That'll come up later as That'll well. That'll come in handy uh, yep. when I, primarily I'll cover um, Romans 5 with a little bit of um, Romans 7 mixed in. Mm -hmm. um, that's the passage with Adam, that's said to be about Adam's federal headship. Yeah. But for now. Yeah. So for, for instance, uh, corruptible anthropos in verse 23 of Romans 1 shouldn't be translated as man, but as corruptible person to reflect the non-specific kind of nature of the word. And I mean, this is fairly, this should not be uh, controversial at all since nobody is suggesting that only men are corruptible or sinful. So it's just one of those things where it's like, you kind of just, yeah, that means person. And the third is the word, uh, the verb paradidomy, which is uh, almost often an aorist. So most often this verb refers to a person or an item or a thing being handed over or given over or, or, or something like that to another person. Sometimes it's God giving Christ over in Ephesians 4 and 5, given over to us for imitation. But sometimes it has a negative connotation, as we'll see in Romans 1. So that's just kind of keep those kind of three terms in mind. Okay, yeah. And briefly before you launch in, maybe I'll even read um, the passage as well. Yeah, why don't you read? Uh, um, do you want to read mine or do you want to read? I'll read yours. Oh, mine uh, is kind of spread out. Okay. Actually, how about I read it? And okay. then we'll go into it. Okay. Um, first, though, how does how is this um, going to be relevant to gender theology? Uh, because, uh, as we'll see, Paul specifically talks about uh, same-sex eroticism. And in the ancient world, you didn't talk about female same-sex eroticism, really. If you did, it was an entirely negative thing. Whereas male-male uh, male eroticism in the ancient world was much more neutral or looked upon with favor or expected even in certain cultures. So the fact that women are explicitly mentioned in this vice list or this decline of civilization narrative means Paul's doing something very interesting here with male and female that we don't really see elsewhere in uh, in the Greco-Roman world. Although I will show that this is entirely consistent with Paul. Okay. And it probably, I mean, also in terms of um, probably sexuality in general. Yeah. Uh, we'll get into that as well. Why don't you read from the Common English Bible, uh, and I'll go through. Actually, and I'll, uh, or which one is this? Is this? The, it's not the ESV. I swear, it's the NASB. Okay, so why don't you just read? Uh, I generally like the NASB. The six, sixteen to thirty-two, and then I'll go through with my own translation as as a thing, so people okay. can get the bigger picture from you. So go All ahead. All right. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in, the righteousness of God, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written. But the righteous uh, will, man will, uh, shall live by faith. Mm -hmm. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, and of birds and four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. Therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them." 
For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire towards one another, men with men committing indecent acts and, per and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. So it's a nice round condemnation of the world, basically, right there. But, alright, so, with that in mind, let's begin with verse 16. Uh, I'm not going to go through uh, in tons of in-depth with some of these verses, I'll just skip them. But uh, in verse 16, you have, you know, the Jewish person first and the Gentile. Uh, you have this image of soterion, this noun, this language of salvation or deliverance. Uh, in Exodus 15:2, in the Septuagint, after the destruction of the army, the sea closes up on them. Moses and the people saying, the Lord is my strength and my might, and he has become my deliverance. And so it's this idea of God kind of breaking into the world again, doing what God does as as God's self, essentially. So it actually works really nicely with what you read from James mm. Cohen, actually. Yeah, I, I was actually kind of thinking it's yeah. hard to unsee. Yeah, and so for Paul, this faithfulness, you know, uh, for all who are exercising faithfulness, uh, is applied to the Jewish people and the Gentile people without distinction or preference. If we take the first, it's being temporal rather than priority as the first in a long chain. That is, the Jewish, pers Jewish person was first given this for the sake of the Gentile person. So there is kind of an inclusive element to this already. Do you think that's already. also behind uh, Paul's use of anthropos throughout? I think so. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, I think that's actually quite possible. Um, and so verse 17, for it is the righteous justice of God, for, or for in it, the righteous justice of God is being apocalyptically unveiled by faithfulness for faith, as it is written, but the righteous one will live by faithfulness. And there's a lot we could say about this verse. I know a dissertation was read entirely on it. But the first is the word apocalypse, which according to Laonida, which is a major lexicon, this word refers to revelation in New Testament only of discourse implicitly linked with divine plan, purpose, or action. So this is something that only God can do, essentially. Uh, it's something that has been unveiled or shown or sh revealed or given to us by faithfulness. And second is also the issue of uh, the, the righteous one will live by faithfulness. This is a reference to Habakkuk 2, the famous, you know, but the righteous person will live by faith. And if Paul is thinking of that text, he's using it messianically. That is, the righteous one is probably Christ, because Christ's righteousness is spoken of in Romans 3, for example. So Christ is kind of at the center of this, because a lot of people assume God is, this is all God doing this. It's like, well, Christ is also referred to as this righteous one, and Christ has also been active in the world, especially in Romans uh, 1, 3 to 4, where he's the resurrected son of power. And so we can't really separate the two here. So there already is, there's an inclusive Godhead, as we would say. You almost think Paul might be an implicit Trinitarian working through here. Mm. Um, and so, for instance, uh, another issue is, uh, is on... Um, uh, so, for example, so we'll get into revelation or natural revelation or natural law, just as kind of implicitly because Paul seems to speak like that. And so in Odes of Solomon 1332, which was composed between the first and third century of the Common Era, we have, a, we have this saying, Light is a revelation for the nations, the ethnos, and the glory of your people Israel. 
So the idea of nations or Gentiles and glory are helpful lexemes that Paul will use in Romans 1. So it shows that Paul's operating within a first century Jewish context. That's He's within this stream. So he's not really doing anything new here, I think. So um, meaning he's... Is he, so is he building off of an argument they already know of? Yes. Basically? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So it's not like he has um, pulled out this argument um, out of his hat, out of nowhere. He's not trying to teach us something new. It's something that they're already acquainted with. And he's going to make a whole case off of This is a history something. lesson. Okay. Yeah. So because you hold X, we're going to try to show you this other point from yeah, X. Exactly. Okay. And so, for example, the, the idea of soterion, it's a reference to the Exodus narrative. Paul is already building off the Jewish history. He's using Jewish lexemes that, oh yeah, we know what we know what this word means. We know the history of this. We know. Mm -hmm. So Paul, but Paul is doing something different. And so as a as a context thing, a big issue is what what is Paul trying to do in eighteen to thirty two? What's he trying to do? And I think if you take Stanley Stowers has a really interesting view. This is a decline of civilization narrative. And if you go back to Genesis three through eleven, you have the entire you know Noah's flood, Tower of Babel, all these empires suddenly collapsing in on themselves through avarice and violence and mm. greed and evil. So Paul is kind of it's it's a it's a highly compact, compressed story that he's telling in a few verses. And so just kind of with that in mind, you know, let's let's keep going. So verse eighteen. For the wrath of God is being apocalyptically unveiled from heaven on all ungodliness and unrighteous people, people, anthropos, who are restraining the truth by wrong, wrongdoing. So we have our first use of, of people in this pericope, and they're both ungodliness and unrighteousness. And uh, what's interesting is that they're not defined by ethnicity or by gender. And so he's already assumed these are people, generally, acting in an ungodly and unrighteous manner. He's not singling out the Jew or the Gentile even, which is interesting because you think he'd be more harsh on the Gentiles because they're known for being like this. Jews generally weren't known for being uh, sexually immoral, especially amongst uh, their Greco-Roman peers. Which I wonder if it's a little insulting to some of the Jewish audience oh, that yes. he suddenly lumped them up in with all of this. Yep. yep. Oh, yeah. And so his, uh, for example, his use of anthropon here, anthropon, uh, does not coordinate what, he, what is different here is it doesn't seem coordinate with other Jewish sources that specifically use masculine language, male sins. Mm. You know, cause, you know, oh, there's a, yeah, there's another yeah, one. Yep. Yeah. So, okay. you know, for example, in the Levitical you know, law codes, you know, uh, 18 and chapter 18 and chapter 20, where it talks about don't lay with another man as you would a woman. It assumes a male perspective on, on this, mm. you know, men having sex with men. And Paul does this elsewhere, but here he doesn't. It's anthropon, not it's not spoken of from a male perspective here. He's sp it's spoken of inclusively. And wasn't, um, I would say, like homosexual relations in the ancient world more male-centered anyway, mm -hmm. where man was the highest, maybe even platonic good. Yeah. And so it was think, you know, thought, of course, you know, Maybe men would want to sleep with men and women would want to sleep with men. You don't men, sleep with the but... second best. You sleep with the best. Oh, my gosh. Well, I mean, so think terrible, about, but, think, but well, that's think how about, they thought. Well, think yeah. about this, too. Like, you, you've read uh, the Gnostic Gospels. A woman has to become a man in the Gospel of Thomas in order to be saved. Yeah. So it assumes that women already lack something in being ontologically female. And so what's interesting here is Paul's not doing that. He's assuming that people are being unrighteous. There's no higher level of of male you know men have this higher unrighteousness it's like no you're, you're both acting in a disgraceful sinful manner you know there's no ironically there's no partiality being shown here which is something you wouldn't expect you you wouldn't even expect paul to use anthropos you'd expect him to use on air or male male is doing like this like the like the nasb translated it the unrighteousness of men it's like no it's paul doesn't speak like that here and so although both prohibitions for instance in the hebrew bible on homosexuality are specifically masculine 
it's not to say, of course, that Moses would have been like, oh, and by the way, it's okay for women to go and do this. I don't think he's thinking like that. But it, it assumes a very narrow perspective that has implications. Paul doesn't assume that narrow perspective. He assumes the broadest possible perspective of, of unrighteous human hmm. beings. And so... Uh, verse 19, because what can be known about God has been visibly man manifested among them or in them, for God has made it manifest to them. And so you have a different word here from apocalypse. It's uh, phanerao. It's, it's kind of a theophany idea almost, which refers to something kind of disclosed. So there's a cognitive element here of the unrighteous people that shows despite God's manifestation among them as a corporate body, they choose to be with one another and seek therefore and they keep going. What we don't have here explicitly is a condemnation of homosexual practice yet. It's just, it's, it's a decline of civilization narrative. It's assuming kind of the worst of the worst. There's no specific sins labeled here. Well, there are specific sins that will be given later, but it, this is just any Jew is like, yeah, uh-huh. Yeah, this is this. We know this. We've heard this before kind of thing. And so then we continue in verse 24 from the creation of the cosmos, God or his invisible actions have been seen and understood both his eternal power and Godhead for they, that is the people are without excuse or therefore the people are without excuse. And so you kind of have the idea of this is also maybe intertextually related to Genesis 1, 2 in the Septuagint where the invisible hovers over the water before the creation of the world. And so there's a creation narrative or sequence kind of being adopted here if one has a good view of intertextuality. So they're putting um, God as the invisible rather than the spirit of God they're, they're, in Genesis hovering over the waters. God is, in, Paul is insinuating that before there was a, there was a, there was a material world, there was God. Yeah. And so there's a kind of a creation, oh, a hello idea going on, but it's also the idea of uh, creativity of God being mm. active in the world before there was something, which assumes God's mind being involved in the world. Oh, interesting. And all that sort of thing. And so creation is itself manifested as part of the unveiling for people to see and witness materiality and perhaps their material bodies, as Paul will kind of get into later. Mm. So the idea of the Imago Dei is preempted here. It's assumed even that people have something given to them by God. So gender itself cognition itself is already a gift from God and this is manifested in community, I think. And so it all, but what is, what a big debate is in relation to homosexuality and stuff is Paul, uh, assuming Genesis one to three, the world of Genesis one to three in telling the story. And that gets an egalitarianism, complementarianism, as we'll see later, or is Paul completely disconnected from this? And he's basically going doing something that's not even related to Genesis one. And I think that to assume, to say that, to argue that Paul doesn't have Genesis 1 and 3 is to literally be blind to the text. And I mean, if, just, if, if you open up Snow or, Bi or Step or uh, Bible Works or anything like that and just hover over certain words in Genesis 1 and Romans 1 in this, you know, you'll see just immediate overlap with certain stepbible.org stepbible.org yep. yeah it's a lot like Bible Works except free. And you download it's very it. very helpful. Yep, and download it and it's great. Not, and you can even just go on um, the internet and use it. Yep. And so I recommend that highly if you don't have $400 to drop or $10,000 to $12,000 for Logos. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If, you, if you want the useful version of Logos, make sure to spend like your money's worth. Yeah, basically an entire year, well, probably two years of my page. It's but. perfect or not for students. Yes. All right. So that's verse 21. So, or verse that's 20. Yay. Yep. <laughs> Thank you, David and Stone Brewer. Mm -hmm. uh, verse 21. Because they knew God, but they did not glorify him as God or express thankfulness, but they became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. So here we have the beginning of kind of somatic imagery of heart um, and, and this sort of language of a somatic idea that Paul is speaking about glory in a way that's similar to the language of above, glory amongst the light of the nations and stuff like that. What's most chilling about this section is not what Paul says later, but the idea of knowing God. So the part, you have a participle, they knew God or were knowing God, but 
this has kind of a past aspect, of course, and it refers to, according to Labanida, this is a recipient of information. So the material world was sufficient for people to know what God desired, which is interesting. People, they, they knew God before any of this, and it's just kind of interesting. Um, and then verse 22, asserting to be wise, they became foolish. There's kind of just a continuation of thought there. And verse 23, and this is where you get into really interesting intertextuality. Uh, and they changed or exchanged, probably changed, the glory of the incorruptible God for a representation of an image of corruptible humanity, anthropos, and birds and four-footed creatures and reptiles. Translating, translating it as changed instead of exchanged, like you did, puts, an, uh, puts a very interesting slant on it. Because yeah. it's not just like this idea of trading, but it's this idea of marring or warping, mm -hmm. too, which... Um, I kind of like. Yeah, because uh, I mean, it's they're they're similar, the same root word, but the uh, the the exchange is later. It's a different. Uh, it has a different um, addition to the front of it. I forget what the term is. I, I sound really dumb right now. So it's kind of like it's a compound word. There it's kind of like you have to d destroy something in order to come up with your own your your own idol. Yeah, I mean, the idea of you know the incorruptible God is as you'll see throughout Paul this idea of this unblemished. This perfection, and then the the Greek word for there is destruction and perishable dissolvement, like fruit, or it has an eschatological sense of uh, eschatological annihilation mm. and all this sort of thing. So it's, it shows that whatever God is, the material world that deteriorates into nothingness is what is being defined here as worthy of worship by these people, aspectively. Mm. And so there's a very distinct contrast between, let's say, the immortal God and mortal humanity and then you have the birds and four-footed creatures and reptiles that's all over the septuagint genesis one this it's all over the place and so instead of the image of christ you know the icon which is used here the image of corruptible humanity the icon of christ in colossians one we have the image of material creation being something an icon of what's worthy of worship and adoration um, but and so the egalitarian nature of humanity is emphasized here because of corruptible human beings immortality or mortality is something all human beings share Again, so we as we mutually seek the images of creation as images worthy of worship in a sinful manner, though. And so both, again, humanity is being played on an, on an even playing field here. There's no, there's no partiality being shown here by Paul. And so um, the fact that Genesis 1, 26-27 and Romans 23 uses some of the exact same terminology proves that humanity's, we would say, initial egalitarian impulse as male and female being created together and given to one another as God's image bearers shows that the empire of power has subverted God's power in the world. And so that's why mm. God has the, his apocalyptic son come. Uh, the Septuagint of Genesis 1, 26-27 reflects Paul's inclusive view of humanity as anthropos, not as arson or male. Mm. And so, as, so Paul adopts this egalitarian perspective because he's a good Jew who can read his Bible. This is not something new that Paul's like, oh yeah, by the way, we had this and we lost it. It's like, no, Paul's like, we know what, we know what creation tells us about male and female and how good it is. Well, and interesting, um, you've done some work on um, how Paul's mentor viewed male and female relationships too. Yep. yep. Maybe you might want to mention a little bit of that. Well, there's very little surviving material of Gamaliel in Acts or in rabbinic literature. So a lot of it's kind of late, but Gamaliel had the similar, or Paul reflects it. Uh, Gamaliel's view of of women having the right to divorce, equal d divorce rights, equal um, visitation rights, and he seems he even says some similar stuff to Galatians three twenty eight. Uh, the only difference I think is Gamaliel distinguishes between the gender of the slaves and stuff like that. Mm. And so in Judaism, there's no pr it doesn't seem to be at least in this strain of Ju Paul's strain of Judaism, there doesn't seem to be a major emphasis on hierarchicalism, at least on in a gendered sense. Um, so Paul is, of course, as a good Jew, is just adopting his teacher, and Jesus was the same way. So, 
Um, so verse 24, therefore God gave them over, uh, that's that paradidomy verb, to the desires of their hearts, somatic language, to a moral uncleanness, to dishonor their bodies amongst themselves. Again, we have the somatic imagery of heart and body, which suggests inclusion. Neither gender is specifically blamed nor immune from Paul's condemnation. His use of the prepositional phrase en autois amongst themselves could suggest that he has in mind the natural occurrences of bodily pain or physiological problems or idolatry. You know, basically, whatever is affecting them somatically affects everyone. And so uh, Robert Jewett had a major point where he talked about sexual uh, diseases in the ancient world. And, said, and he kind of suggested that this is kind of a, an oblique reference to that. Um, it doesn't, it's not explicit in the context, but it, it, can, it makes sense of it. So far, Paul could be speaking of heterosexual couples. So we don't have any explicit of indictment of homosexual behavior yet. Yeah, everyone wants to zero in on that. Yeah. Um, but it's, let's just say it's a lot more broad here. Yep. Um, and something else to take note of mm -hmm. God gave them over in the desires of their hearts. Mm -hmm. So there's a, there's a sense in which they're doing sin and there's a sense in which God just pushes them over in terms of, uh, divine judgment. Yeah. It's a sense in which you have, a, it's an active and a middle sense. God actively gave them over to something they were already doing and participating in and wanted to do freely. They're in the boat headed downstream. He's going to push them there faster. Yep. And so this reminds us that while same-sex eroticism is sinful, any eroticism outside the confines of what God desires is also equally sinful, perhaps even more so. So while Paul will condemn same-sex eroticism later, uh, right here, this stands as a great reminder to heterosexual couples or single people that they have no, no priority or uh, part, there's, part, there's part, no partiality being shown in their sexual sin. Just because you're straight doesn't mean you get off the hook. Um, no one has an excuse before God, and this includes this would condemn same or uh, uh, heterosexual people who indulge in covert immorality. Hmm. For example, sin is sin, no matter your gender and orientation or preference. What do you mean by covert? Uh, well, let's say you have uh, Ted Haggard who happily will say, "Oh yeah, homosexuals, the gays are going to hell," and yet he's doing stuff on mm. the side that's evil. Or you have people that happily condemn stuff that they themselves are practicing in. Um, so we're all without excuse in this sense. We all fall short. Yeah, true. I think especially in the Christian community, we all like to point fingers at specific individuals that yeah. are maybe symbolic of some odd thing that we fear. But And yet, like, it, the elephant in the room is that yep. they are sinning in abundance. Yep. like, And happily, too, because they're not yeah. like the gay sinner. They're, oh, my you know, gosh. I actually had some people actually say that to me. Yeah, we are sinners, but we're not like them. I'm like, that's awful. And I'm just like, I think God kind of doesn't think that according to Romans one, which you are very happy well, to cite. And frankly, one of the sins that God hates the most is pride. Yep. So I would say maybe they're worse off. Yeah. And so, the people that they hate. yeah. And so verse 25, this is where it kind of begins to change a bit. These same ones exchanged. It didn't change. It's an exchange. It's a meta uh, exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and paid religious homage to the creation over and against the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And so the verb exchanged is uh, defined to alter to the extent of inversion. Hmm. So the material world with all its visible power was already deemed worthy of veneration. What is assumed here by Paul is that the fall has, of course, already occurred. And so we're living in a Babel or a Noahide world here, at least as far as the, the, the idea he's working with. We don't get a clear transition between Eden and fall here. He kind of seems to just 
move forward, but I think that's intentional because it doesn't serve his purpose. The language he's using assumes Eden, Edenic egalitarianism, essentially. And so uh, moving on to verse 26, and this is where it gets really interesting. For this reason, God gave them over, same verb, to dishonorable passions. For their females, not women, females exchanged the natural use for the one that is against nature. And so the word female here is a direct link back to Genesis 127 in the Septuagint, oh. where God created male and female in his own image. It's the same word, thelos. God's condemnation of lesbianism here is the only explicit reference to same -sex erot female same-sex eroticism in the entire Bible, which makes sense because if you read from a male perspective, you would only condemn explicitly male homosexuality. You wouldn't condemn female homosexuality. It's like they couldn't like even perceive that women would want to be with women, not men. Which I'll get into that later. <laughs> uh, the somewhat oblique phrase for the quote for the one that is against nature most kind of naturally refers to what follows, namely the men or their husbands. And so the natural use assumes that woman is for man and man is for a woman later, as it said. So it's kind of hard to escape the idea that Paul is operating with what has come to be called a natural law concept here. And th what is really interesting about this, and this, will, this is kind of the crux of my argument, uh, Bernadette Bruton is a New Testament scholar. She's at Brandeis University. She's written, I think, the definitive book on lesbianism in the ancient world. Although a lot of people, even progressive and conservative, kind of sought to nuance her, but it's generally considered by both sides to be a really good work. Most pertinent to her argument about same-sex erotic activity concerns what she argues as Paul's misogyny. Mm. And so I'm going to quote her just a sentence as her conclusion. Uh, quote, she says, I've argued that Paul's condemnation of homoeroticism, particularly female homoeroticism, reflects and helps maintain a gender asymmetry based on female subordination. I hope that churches today, being apprised of the history I've presented, will no longer teach Romans 126 and following as authoritative. Oh, too late now. End, end quote. We're teaching it. <laughs> yeah. And this comes from her, her work, Love Between Women, uh, page, I think it's, yeah, page 302. While, while it's interesting, and it, she has some really interesting hermeneutical points she makes later, uh, I do think the majority of Paul's surviving writings press against her conclusion that Paul is operating with a gendered asymmetry. Yeah, agreed. Um, however, the idea of genderedness is also inescapable insofar as the female is created for the male. So there is, it's not, a, it's asymmetry, it's its a cyclical idea, gendered cyclicality. They, they work for one another. Yeah, and we've seen that, like, yeah. even in terms of even Ephesians 5. Yep. Um, I mean, in Genesis, you have um, the woman's created um, to be the strong help. Yep. to rescue Adam from his loneliness. Uh, but similarly, I think in Ephesians 5, you have the husband being assigned household chores, yep. <laughs> essentially, um, and loving his wife. Uh, I'm going to read to you real quick from Pseudophacolides. It's a 1st century BC, 1st century AD Jewish work. And there's a uh, big section that we might call a household code, you know, uh, stuff that's addressed to husbands, wives, or actually it would just be addressed to the paterfamilias. It's just addressed to the men. And so you have the, all this stuff where he says, do not remain unmarried lest you die nameless. And he keeps on going, but he's talking to the man, to the head of the household. He's not talking to anyone else. He's talking about how that person interacts with the subordinate members of his household. So he'll say, you know, for example, uh, do not seek sexual union with irrational animals. Do not outrage your wife by shameful ways of intercourse. Do not transgress the with unlawful sex, the limit set by nature, for not even animals are pleased with intercourse by of male and male, and do not women and let women not imitate the sexual role of men, and it keeps on going and stuff like that. Um, but you see this idea of the male centeredness of oh yeah, men shouldn't have sex with men, which in a Jewish mindset is pretty common. Um, but don't let the woman be 
have a sexual role in your relationship. What I think, or just not a, the male sexual role, yeah, which is defined as the one in power or the one with authority. Yeah. Um, so, which is interesting, as we've covered in First Corinthians seven. Yep, and I'm getting right to that. So in Ephesians, but what makes this so unique is that Paul starts with women first in verse 26. Here, they're women exchanged. So, and it's the exact same way in Ephesians 5.21, the woman is named first. In Colossians 3.18, the woman is named first. Priscilla is named first before Aquila most times. And he removes, I think, any notion of female subordination in 1 Corinthians 7, 3 to 5, as we as you said, which asserts that neither spouse has uh, authority over the other, but it's yielded to the husband, which is inferred in Ephesians 5. What's most important is that Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, 5, that neither spouse is to deprive one another sexually, which suggests or asserts that women have sexual agency and desires. That's unspeakable in a Greco-Roman context. You don't, you don't grant that to your wife. Your wife is not a sexual being. She's a, a, a household manager. Maybe she has your babies. If you yeah, want, has the babies, keeps your household. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So they didn't view their wives as agents of sexual pleasure or of having sexual that's, desires. Yeah, and that's what you have. And that's what. For and yep. And such, that's yeah. what Paul does there, and he's assuming the same thing here, except here he says it's it's sinful because you're not supposed to do that women with women, but he assumes that women have sexual agency here and in First Corinthians seven. So he's already upended kind of the hierarchical structures Even of the world. Even in Ephesians 5, mentioning the yep. wives first. Yep. Yeah. And so this female first placement reveals that even his, in his condemnation of female same-sex eroticism, his egalitarian ethic is consistent. Woman is for the man, likewise the man for the woman. So even in the creation account, the woman is taken from the man's side, not his rib, a side, which suggests not only a somatic unity, but a sacredness to their bodies. The side of a temple, for instance. So there's basically we are, as, as gendered beings, we're architectural. We, are, we have a sacredness to our bodies, our genders. So in the separation of the gendered beings, there remain differences, but they're not hierarchical. But, but Genesis only makes this explicit in terms of the interdependency of being fruitful and multiplying. You need both genders for that. That's the only, you know, difference that we really have that's specified. There's no, the male is the head or the male is this or the woman is this or there's nothing given there. So women, according to Paul, are sacral architecture, gender beings that have their own virtues and desires and agency in a marriage and in the church. So the fact that their desires here are being used in a sinful way does not assume that they're having sexual desires at all or sinful which is really cool. So Paul's theology of Eden, of egalitarianism in Eden, is alive and well, and his condemnation of female same-sex eroticism shows he's not concerned with misogyny, or woman-hating, or man-hating, or so-called male headship. Rather, as we see in the next verse, dishonored mutualism is at work here, which assumes an honorable mutualism in marriage and sexual activity elsewhere. And so verse 27, in this same way also, the males abandon the natural use of the female, Inflamed by their desire for one another, males with males acting in an indecency and obtaining amongst themselves the compensation of their error. And so the inflamement is in reference, of course, to sexual desires. But the language here is clearly speaks of mutuality. It's the same sort of one another language. They, bec they became inflamed by their desire for one another. Same exact language in Ephesians 5.21, submitting to one another. This is a mutual thing. This is not pederasty. It doesn't look like it's not rape. It's a mutual seeking of one another here which shows in this case in a negative way. in a negative way for paul this is dishonored mutuality as it forsakes the female for the male if anything uh it shows that paul has a higher view of woman in this sense as a sexual counterpart to man because he needs woman essentially and then verse 28 and we'll wrap this up pretty quick and quote and just as they did not consider it to hold to God in full knowledge, God gave them over to into a futile mind to do that which is not proper. And for the rest of the passage, we'll we'll kind of 
end on that because you have this entire passage of sexual morality and pornea and greediness uh just that kind of fits the earlier part yeah. of romans where it, it um he uh he paul has indeed mentioned um homosexuality but yeah He's really, it's not really about that. It's really yeah. about everything else he's been talking yeah. about. Yeah, it's an example of something that's sinful. That yeah. Had you not had those two verses, we would essentially say the same thing about heterosexual couples acting in yeah. decency and, and all that. So there is an egalitarianism even between what we would say uh, same-sex people and straight people here as well. But the chief end, I think, of Paul's pericope about the calling of empires is that the cumulative effect of sin makes us, quote, worthy of death in uh, uh, verse 32. Death, that is that tyrant that is lurking amongst the empires and the individuals who seek idols and avarice. And we'll see more of this in Romans 5 and kind of 7 later, this idea of empire, of death being exercising dominion. Um, but essentially, but suffice it, one's gender is directly relevant to Paul's language here, and nobody is without excuse. Male and female are both equally um, condemned under the egalitarian ethos of, of Eden. And whatever hierarchy one wants to impute into this text and elsewhere is utterly foreign to Paul's logic here. Paul's a good Jew. He's not a 1950s you know, dude in a seminary who writes a book against women pastors. Paul's operating on the goodness of creation, the egalitarianness of creation, and the mutuality that is required for husband and wife. You can't have one without the other. And if you forsake one, you're forsaking the other. And so, yeah, that's essentially the glory of, of man is his wife. And the glory of a woman is her husband here. And so, yeah, that's basically, I think, what Paul kind of talks about in terms of gender and mutuality here. He uses negative examples, but they reinforce his positive examples elsewhere. There's no misogyny here. There's no even male headship or hierarchy here. It's just, it's essentially a tale of, of sin gone wrong. Yeah. yeah. It affects both people, both everyone, essentially. We're all without excuse in that sense. So yeah, that's broadly what I think the text is going at. So what do you think? Yeah. And so I think, yeah. And next time too, we'll cover another negative example, Adam. Mm. Yeah. And um, if you've looked at our previous episode, um, you will have seen that um, Paul also uses Eve as yep. a, nev- a negative example or type of Christ. Yeah. So it, it, it always baffles me that um, people want to zero in on negative examples as though there are sometimes things to live up to. Mm. But I think it's better to look at it as though um, Paul does have a very egalitarian theology at work um, of his own making. Um, this is, again, pre or before any of the modern forms of these theological um, points that are based off of him. But mm. um it's kind of presupposed even in his negative examples as well. Yeah. And it reminds us too, that for those who hold to a a classical or traditional view of, of sexual ethics, like, like you and I do, there is something very sobering about what Paul condemns here. And we actually see ourselves in this as well. Those who, the, the, the list of sins later on in chapter one are exceptionally harsh and they are exceptionally, they cut deep. They, they, they're intended to. And I don't think Paul, even at his best, would say he's immune from these things himself. And so I think we, we take great comfort in some sense in that all are, are, are sinful at the foot of the cross, but at the same time, we are at the foot of the cross where there is mercy and where God has made atonement and we cast ourselves there. Yeah, well, and let's put it this way, too. Um, well, we'll see. Uh, Paul doesn't think that we should stay in Romans, in bondage, in Rome, like as though... In Romans 7, um, there is freedom in Christ. Yeah. Romans 8. Yep. 
So, and then even in Romans one, the the revelation or the apocalypse of Christ is the one who gives us deliverance from the the the, the, the chaotic seas and the evil empires, and it's something that is not shown partiality. Anyone can be delivered by Christ and through Christ, and given a life of holiness and the pursuit of God. So it's 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 a negative fall of civilization, but it's something beautiful in that it calls all people, regardless of of that, yeah. to yourself and or to God's self. It doesn't just see, uh, even in this passage, sin as just just something that's opposed. Like he doesn't see sin as just another power opposed to God's purposes. Mm-hmm. It's almost like sin itself is a judgment as well. Yeah. It's like sinning and being in a disposition that's away from God and warping who God is is actually in itself something horrific and so- something in itself that's a punishment. Mm. And I think that's also maybe where salvation comes into play, where we're not just, um, quote, saved to go to this, like, mythical land after we die, um, the farm in the sky. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. Um, But we're actually saved into something, and holiness and having a a heart that's right with God um, is also part of our salvation. We're actually being... um, saved as we're um, walking in the way that God wants us to walk. As we seek holiness, we're being perfected into the image of Christ. Yeah. Yeah. Image of Christ being the, what we're, what the goal is. And anyone can, yeah. pers- is the whole is point called, of the yeah. incarnation. Yep. We're all called to pursue the image of Christ and it does, and Paul doesn't seem to care if you're gay, straight, black, white, blah, 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 male, female. And she's like, no, seek Christ and be conformed to his image and we'll, we'll be